Thank you so much. This is, uh, I've never been to Chattanooga, and it's an amazing city. Just the cheesy stuff is, is way cooler than the cheesy stuff in, uh, in Philadelphia. So I'll definitely, uh, my family and I will definitely be back. My son uh, just left to go back to the climbing gym. So. Um, so what I wanted to talk about is kind of my own evolution into working with distributed teams. Um, but really, in order to talk about that, I find myself... Um, when I was thinking about talking about this topic and the fact that I, I write a lot about collaboration and meetings, and what do those meetings become when you're working in a distributed team? It becomes kind of a different thing. But really, what I, what I think about is, is, is what is a business? We're asking ourselves just a, the really fundamental question, what do we think of as a business? There's lots of ways of, of answering that really simple question. If you ask the government, the government thinks of your business as employees, right? So you're taxed based on how many employees you have, as an employee, you pay your taxes. So your entity as a business is defined by the presence or, or, or number of employees. Um, if you were to ask maybe uh, you know, someone else, they might say legally that the legal system would call a business when you incorporate. When you become an entity that can be sued or, or can make a profit that isn't representative of a single person. I use Apple in this example because a lot of people think of Apple as a person. Uh, you know, obviously it's, it's thousands of people, but a lot of people thought of Apple as Steve Jobs before he died. But, you know, Steve Jobs isn't liable for Apple and he's not singularly responsible for Apple. Um, if you ask your parents, um, they think of your business as a building. One of my favorite recent articles from the Internet, uh, your mom's six best attempts at describing what you do for a living. So, um, it, one of the things your mom will say, and Leslie can back me up on this, if, if, uh, tell me if your mom actually says this, number four, is it's a real office. So there's a physical space that, that you go to. But a lot of us don't have that anymore, right? A lot of us, um, we, we don't have that anymore at all. To me, at this point, what I think of as a business is really simple. It's, it's composed of three things. You have people who make things, and you have customers, and there are ideas that connect those things. And those ideas should solve some kind of problem that the customers have, otherwise it's not a viable business. So you're in the business of problem solving. Um, so it's a group of people getting together to solve problems. And the thing that, the reason I like to talk about what a business is, is because there are two things that are fundamentally changing how we do business. One is technology, and we can talk for hours and hours about all the different ways that technology is changing business. There's one specifically I'm gonna talk about tonight. And the other is the customers themselves. The customers are changing if you think about the way we do business these days. So let me show you an example of what I mean. If you think about television, I watch a lot of television. If you guys want to hang out afterwards and have a drink, there are a dozen TV shows I'd love to talk about with you. Um, television, in the, uh, in essentially when it started, content and advertising were blended, right? There wasn't like advertising breaks. You were watching a television show and the advertising was a part of the show. You're watching the Steve Allen show brought to you by this particular beer. And then in the 80s, when we, when we got to cable, they were essentially diversifying the content so much that you could get a really specific audience with advertising. So you, know, you could hit a very specific demographic with MTV, and the business model of television changed a lot because advertising became more and more specialized. But now television and video content, the business model is entirely different. Now technology is allowing us to, to say, I want to watch this content at this time and you can distribute it independent of advertising entirely if you want, 
or if you're in, in, in you know, in any number of on-demand technologies like Hulu or, or you name it, they, they figure out other ways to incorporate advertising. So technology is kind of ratcheted up what you can do with a business. But the other piece of this, if you look at the evolution of this model, is the expectation of the customer has changed really drastically. Like this expectation, the customer was like, oh my God, there's images in front of me. Here, the customer's expectation was, I just want to see music videos, and why did you screw it up? Like, why did you guys stop doing that? And now the expectation is just give me what I want when I want it. So the customer has increasingly played a role in the design of the business, in deciding how the business works. And what that's called in academics is called co-design. You know, it's a customer having a role in saying the way the business works. Uh, you know, um, there's a book by this gentleman. Uh, his name is C.K. Prahalad, and it's called The Future of Competition. And it's, it, he, in the book, he talks about the fact that our business models have evolved to a point where customers expect to be able to say what the product or service they're getting, when they get it, what form it takes, you know, how it solves their problem. And that's a fundamental shift for those of us who work in digital design. Um, uh, you know, up until even three or four years ago, people thought of digital design services as a black box service. If you're in the business of making websites or applications, you would get a big ass list of requirements and you would take all of those and you would make decisions and give it to the customer and they would look at it. They would say this, this, and not this. But now, the more you can involve the customer in the design work that you're doing early stages so that they play a role in the design decisions, the better off it is for them as customers or as clients or as users, and the better off it is for you as a designer because you're making smaller decisions more frequently rather than making a whole bunch of decisions to build a whole product. But here's the thing. Now that I work remote, things are very, very different than they were when I would be working in an office and we could collaborate. I could collaborate with the designers I worked with, or I could collaborate with the, with the client and bring them into the office or go to their site. Um, fundamentally, technology has allowed us to do a lot of amazing things, right? Um, but you know, we have all of these services now. Um, and this is just, just a tiny sampling of, of services that allow us to work remotely. We can work on the same document at the same time. Uh, we can be chatting in real time. Um, we can be, you know, have a shared document repository. Even better, a shared code repository. Things like Git and Subversion, you know. But all of these things, all of this technology, um, you know, uh, we're all working remotely to some degree. But that's not collaboration. What all of that technology is, is workflow. And it's super important, and it's super awesome. It's super awesome that I can work on a very small piece of code or sketch out a little bit of a design and share it with somebody that I work with and get a better result because we're going back and forth in smaller pieces, right? But that's improvements in workflow. You know, when am I talking with somebody in real time? But collaboration is something else. Collaboration is when the outcome is better than all of those individual pieces of workflow. So as a business, if you're collaborating to build something, you're collaborating with, with I'm going to collaborate with you or with you because I'm going to build a better product than I would doing it by myself. You know, even if I'm doing a little bit by myself and you're doing a little bit by myself, that collaboration time that we have at the beginning when we're figuring out why we're doing what we're doing, 
That's what adds value and makes it better than the individual efforts. But with remote collaboration, it, there's a problem. Now, um, you know, if I come up to you and I'm trying to communicate the importance of something, and I'm like this, you know, that conveys certain meaning to you. But um, it doesn't convey the same meaning that this image does, this two-dimensional image. And one of the reasons, uh, one, one of the things that, I, that I've learned um, in collaborative space is that the more we spend time talking about outcomes, you know, when we get together to collaborate um, in real time, in a remote space, whether it's a Google Hangout or a Skype chat or, or whatever, the more that we spend time on outcomes, visualizing what it is we're building, actually sketching the, the ideas, um, focusing on where we're gonna go at the end game and how we're gonna get there, and what some of the challenges are gonna be, the better, the, the better value I get out of that time spent collaborating for this reason, for that remote limitation. Because you, depending on which book about remote co-working and collaboration you read, you will lose anywhere from two to 80% of the full range of human communication by collaborating remotely. If you read books by people who say you should meet in person, they'll say you'll lose 80%. If you read a book by Jason Fried, he says 2%. But regardless, there is a loss, right? Um, but the, the other thing is, and there's a book by Scott Birkin that I recommend you check out called uh, The Year Without Pants. Um, if you haven't read it, it's a book about uh, his year spent managing a team at Automatic who, who uh, builds WordPress and lots of other, uh, of other things. And he said, you know, for, for collaborative remote teams, the bottleneck is clarity, right? The bottleneck is getting to the vision, getting to the outcome. It's not a, a function of agreeing on what code needs to be written or, or how creative we can be with our design choices. So in order to get to that clarity, you need this thing in your collaborative time when you're collaborating remotely. You actually need conflict. Um, uh, my wife, she works at an agency, and she has this client that I, that I won't mention uh, that they only have meetings after decisions have been made, which makes no sense to me because the whole point of getting together to talk about something is to surface all of the conflicts that are naturally built into collaboration time. When you, when you get together and you're, you're talking to each other, there are conflicts built into everything you do. If you're a designer and you're talking to a developer, there are conflicts of, of quality of design versus uh, capabilities of bandwidth, except in Chattanooga, obviously. There's no limit to, to bandwidth here. But, um, but, but regardless, that conflict is a critical thing. Um, uh, Patrick Lencioni, he wrote a book about, uh, is a fable actually, about meetings in business. And he said that one of the two key purposes of meetings in our process is to surface conflict, you know, to get that conflict out. There are two things I want to talk about tonight. One, I just want to tell you what my approach is to virtual meetings. You know, I want to tell you my personal approach, what I do before a meeting, what I do during a meeting, and what I do after a meeting. Um, in telling you that, I will tell you all the things I do wrong because I've made a lot of big mistakes trying to figure some of this stuff out over the past three years. As I've, it's the, the only time I've been working this way. Um, but in making those mistakes, there are about six things that I've learned that, that I find, regardless of culture, regardless of um, um, how big an organization you have, you can kind of take these six lessons or these ideas and apply them to your own virtual meetings and say, oh, is it doing this? If not, maybe we should change something. Or if it is doing this, then, then it might be working. 
And that first one is focusing on outcomes. That was the first thing that I mentioned. Um, so I wanna talk about what I do before a meeting. Some of this stuff might seem obvious to you, and if, that, if it is, great. That means that you're ahead of the game and you can tell me how to do this better. But some of this stuff um, I find really uh, incredibly helpful. Uh, and it wasn't until I worked this way that it, that it occurred to me. So before I have a meeting, there are two things, two tools I use. I either use Doodle or Pow Wow app. Um, these are apps that allow me to get a whole bunch of people to agree on when we're actually gonna talk about something. You know, they're very easy apps to use. Um, however, there's this one limitation that I've had with both of these apps as my teams have grown more and more distributed. They both handle time zones terribly. Um, you know, uh, if you've read uh, Jason, Fre Jason Fried's Remote, the working across time zones is one of the biggest challenges of actually collaborating effectively um, uh, in a distributed team. And he actually, it's hilarious to me that Jason does this, and I don't mean to pick on Jason. Um, it's, he says, you know, we gotta have less meetings in our process, but his solution to time zone problems is to constantly be overlapping. So you're kind of in a constant meeting uh, if, if, you're, if, you're things are, if your time zones are overlapping, if everybody's working in an overlap period. Um, so you can constantly talk. But to, to address the time zone thing, I learned this thing from a friend of mine who works with distributed teams. Her name is Margo. Uh, I always lead with the uh, attendees' time zones and then follow with my time zone. So anytime I say, you know, hey, Lindsay, do you want to get together and talk about something? The first thing I say is, you know, we're in the same time zone, but if we went a few, what is it, like 200 feet that way, we would be in central time. So I would say, do you want to meet, you know, 2 p.m. central time, uh, uh, 1 p.m. eastern, you know? Always, you know, just like this, or if you're dealing with somebody in the UK, like some of my projects, always lead with their time zone. And that immediately eliminates any confusion about that issue. Um, big help for me. Um, these are the tools that I use, but it doesn't really matter what tool you use. If you use WebEx or, or uh, one tool or the other, I'll tell you just a few things I like about these tools in a second. But the most important thing is agreeing on the tool in advance. Um, I have gone to Google Hangouts when somebody was waiting for me in Skype. I've gone to Skype calls where somebody was, had set up a WebEx thing. You have to have in advance what tool you're gonna use and, and, and any details about that tool, like if there's a dial-in number or if there's any kind of video connection information. And, um, and the reason is you are not your attendees. People who are in user experience design always say, don't forget you're not your users. You know, you don't want to design for yourself. For meetings, you're not your attendees. You're there to serve the people that, that you're collaborating with. So in order to serve them more effectively, you have to make it e really easy for them to work this way, especially if they don't work this way already. So one thing I do in meeting invites, especially, and I tend to use Google Hangouts for most of my meetings, I always have this, which is great if they use Google Calendar, but if they use Outlook like a ton of the world does, that will be lost and they will lose the, the Google Hangout information. So I always copy that Hangout link right into the invite, as well as any backup information like a phone number that they can reach me if I don't show up. You know? And there's a reason that I do this and I wanna show you the reason. Oh, you want me to go back? Are you ready for my audio? All right, here it comes. Thanks for coming in, Nelson. Mr. Belson's very excited to meet with you. Uh, I thought he was in Jackson Hole this week. Yes, he is. We're going to call him up on the telehuman. It's amazing. It's holographic 3D teleconferencing technology. This is a real thing. Required. 
It's going to feel as if Gavin is right here in the room with you. Oh, it's him! It's him! Hello, Nelson. Thanks for meeting with me. Whoa. Uh, hi, that's cool. Am, am I a hologram over there, too? What? No, of course not. Question, is Peter Gregory toying with me? Is he trying to make Richard seem folksy? Like some aw shucks boy genius entry in every man's competition? Mr. Bell? Mr. Belson? Can you hear me? Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah, it's just, it's sort of fading. Hello? 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 I'm hearing you, it's just the images. Nelson, shut up for a second. If you can hear me. Make a gesture. Is it? Do you? I hear you. Is this? I have no idea what you're saying, Nelson. Nelson, Nelson. Can you help me, please? Okay, I think what happened was when you set it up, you forgot. I, to... I didn't set it up. I paid one of you people to set it up. Just fix it. Uh, okay. Here's the thing. It's not working. Um, the audio's still working. You could just use that. The audio is working? Excuse me? I paid 20 million dollars to acquire this company. Do the audio is working. Audio worked 100 years ago. You It appears we've lost him. Yeah. Why don't we just yeah. try Holy Chat instead? Yeah. Ah, that's better. Sorry. The telehuman is a great piece of technology. Unfortunately, the broadband isn't that great out here in rural Wyoming. That presents a great business opportunity. Nelson, no, make a gesture. Hear me. Oh. <laughs> I think you forgot to update your software. same weather affecting their broadband and there, there's so many p ways that, that that technology can fail you so I ne as, as a second uh, or a third lesson actually I never trust one technology for any of my meetings I always have a primary technology a secondary technology if the secondary technology is built in to the technology the, the primary that's great like phone is built into WebEx or phone is built in to Google Hangouts which is actually really cool if you didn't realize that um, uh, and then I have a, a tertiary fallback, a third fallback. And even then, it, it, there, there are still problems. And the reason I do that is this. Okay, then Lauren's going to catch you. Okay, it's called the trust fall. Okay, trust fall. Ready, set, go. <laughs> so, so I had, this, uh, I, had this, I had this meeting where I was doing a kickoff meeting. And uh, for a nonprofit, and they had a, an office in, in Delaware, and then they had um, a distributed chapters all over the country, and they didn't have a lot of money. So they were like, we want to do this kickoff and get everybody on the same page on this project. So we're going to all get together in Delaware, but we can't fly anybody in, so we're going to remote all these people in, right? And we get to the office, and there's bad Wi-Fi, and they're like, oh, we'll use the phone, but there were no phone lines on the floor that we were meeting in for some reason. So one thing after another just went wrong with this. 
And this was a, a fairly big project for a large uh, nonprofit. And as a result, you know, I, I learned a couple of things. Number one, uh, I always use email as a way to prepare people for what we're about to do. So everybody always gets an email five or 10 minutes before something begins saying, this is what we're gonna use, these are the fallbacks, and if you have any questions, this is who you call. And if I'm running that meeting, I don't, I'm, I don't give them my number, I give them the number of somebody on my team. But the other thing I always do is, because all of these technologies are gonna fail, um, I ask myself a really simple question. Most of the work I do is distributed teams, but a lot of times I'll meet with clients in person at the beginning of a project to kick something off. Anytime I have a meeting, I ask myself this question. Is this meeting primarily virtual or is it primarily in person? Because 50-50 is a disservice to both audiences. Things that we do in the virtual space are not one-to-one -one experiences to things we do in person. If we're doing a, a conversation in person or we're, we're doing an activity together or sketching together, there's an experience of doing that in person and there's a way to do it virtually, but you can't move them back and forth and you can't have two groups of people doing them together virtually and in person. So I lean one way or the other. There's always gonna be those CEOs that wanna call into the meeting or, or, or situations where you have a little bit of virtual in a, in a primarily in person or vice versa. But, but if somebody wants to do both, I actually do two meetings. And for this client, I ended up doing that. I had an in-person meeting, and then I did a second meeting that was entirely virtual for all the virtual attendees, where we simply repeated the content um, and went through the exercises in a virtually appropriate way. Now, I wanna ask you guys, what do you guys do before you have an important meeting that's a virtual meeting or remote meeting that ensures success for those meetings? Like, what have you learned that you have to do? Go ahead. A clear and set agenda, which applies to in-person or, or remote. How do you distribute that agenda remotely? Via email? Yeah. So one thing that I've done um, uh, in the last year or so is I actually have the agenda living in a Google Doc, and then during the meeting, anybody can reference that Google Doc as we add to it, which is kind of a nice uh, way of doing that. And there are some meeting tools that do that. Who else? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I have a client um, in uh, in DC who is. Oh, sorry. I have a client in DC who's um, awesome. Great guy. He's almost 80 and uh, didn't want to set up a Google account to do Google Hangouts, but we talked him into it. We created a fake account with all this fake information for him to log in. Every week we have a Google Hangout. Every week he can't figure out what to do. Um, so the, the, one of the things I like about Google is we can fall back to that phone number because we always set up 10 minutes in advance. We all get in the Hangout 10 minutes before the meeting starts, and inevitably uh, Richard can't figure out how to, how to get into the Hangout. So. And that's not even the technology failing. Um, anything else that anybody does, like a, a, a surefire thing they always do before they, they do a remote meeting? Yeah.
Yeah. So always have the landline kind of ready to go right next to or in parallel with the virtual stuff. So I want to show you a couple examples of things that I do in remote meetings that I've kind of transitioned from in-person meetings, um, ways to solve certain problems. So these are the technologies that I use primarily, and there are a couple of reasons. I, I like Google Hangouts um, because they fail back to text. So if something's wrong, we can text each other, can you hear me, can you hear me, can you see me? Um, your mic is muted, which is what Google Hangouts do by default, and nobody ever remembers. Uh, we, they fail back to phone, which is a nice feature. So when I say they fail back to phone, I mean I can actually get somebody's phone number and dial them into a Google Hangout, and they can be participating in the call at the same time without having to have parallel technologies. So I don't have to have my phone hooked up for them to be on the phone, which is a nice, uh, a nice feature that is run via the technology on Google Voice. And then obviously Google Hangouts are free, which is a great price for someone like me who's got a young business. But even if you have Google for Business, the, the, um, you can get pretty, it's, it's relatively inexpensive. Um, however, I use join, join me, uh, or join.me for a couple of things. I use join.me because they, they provide me with both audio and screen recording, um, which I love for any meetings related to research. So I'll, I'll uh, you know, record the whole meeting. I can get a transcript of it if I want to use a transcript service. And um, I can also do screen recording. So if I want to look at some designs or some ideas with someone else and record their interaction with them, I can you know, record what they do or I can show them what I want to do, record that, and then send it to them. The other thing I like is um, join.me actually gives you custom URLs for every single time you have a meeting, which is kind of a cool little feature. So anytime I'm using my, uh, my brand or my company, Seven Heads, and I have a meeting set up, I can some, send somebody to join.me slash sevenheadsdesign. But I did some work for a, a big gaming company recently. Let's call them Minmendo. And uh, um, while I was working for Mimendo, I was able to set up meetings at join.me slash Mimendo Research uh, or whatever. And I can change the way the website looks and kind of make it appropriate to the brand requirement at hand um, and send out a URL that makes sense to people. Um, the other thing I ask for every virtual meeting is how would I do this in person? So if I want to work with somebody to get to a better design idea, or I want to work with somebody to, to kind of get at some kind of solution, I ask, well, what would I do if we were together in person, and how do I transition that into a virtual space? And I want to show you two examples. So a lot of my in-person meetings, we do a lot of sketching, right? We might sketch the interface or sketch aspects of the application that we're building. But sketching virtually doesn't really work the same way. Um, you either end up trying to draw with a mouse, or if you're not really proficient with a, a Wacom or Wacom tablet or whatever they're called, um, you know, you end up doing kind of crappy drawings. Uh, or, um, you know, you might use things like the, the sketching that's built into some of these tools. Uh, like G Google Hangouts has a really lame sketch thing. You end up putting like rabbit ears on each other and stuff, and it's silly. Um, what I do instead is I keep this by my desk. So it's a pile of three by five white cards and a Sharpie. There's, there's always a pile of these by my desk for all of my remote meetings. And as a result, my desk looks like this. There's like tons and tons of three by five cards with sketches and notes and everything on them. Because what I can do when I'm meeting with somebody is actually use that as a way to show them a really simple concept that fits in about that space. But if I hold it up to a webcam, it's, it's at a resolution that won't be lost if they have crappy screen resolution. Because it's a Sharpie, it's a thick line, right? So um, an example is this card. This is a thank you card that, that I designed with um, uh, a graphic designer, uh, a guy named Dan Mall. And we were kind of brainstorming how we were going to make this thank you card and what the, 
what the, what the card should be and how it would work and what we were gonna do with letterpress and, and, and punching and all this stuff. And what we ended up doing was, you know, I had the three by five card here and I was showing him here exactly what I wanted, you know, and kind of sketched it out and drew it and he was able to see that. And that was enough resolution to get at that result. So it's a very low tech way to collaborate visually in Google Hangouts or whatever tool you use, Skype. The tool really doesn't matter. It's just the idea that you have a visual way of expressing yourself other than using your voice or jumping at somebody emphatically. Um, something else that uh, designers like is sticky notes, right? Post-it notes. If you've ever worked with designers or in designers' offices, you've eventually done something like this. And this is awesome, but if you have like an office and you have a wall and you try to do this virtually and you're like, oh, sh where should this note go? And people can't read via webcam. This is a horrible way of working uh, remotely, right? It's a great way to organize your own thoughts, but as a collaborative exercise, it doesn't work really well. Um, I wanna show you guys a video, uh, a technology that it's relatively new, but it's designed to allow you to work this way remotely. It's kind of cool. It's called uh, Board Thing. Uh, and I'll show you a quick video. It's kind of like a jazzy soundtrack, but I'll talk a little bit about what it does. Got audio if you want it. Audio is not that important though. It's really bad music. But um, yeah. But you can kind of add these cards. All it does is you type something and you can put them in a space and you can have as many participants in a space like this as you want. Um, but it does some nice things like um, you can add a background. So if you want these cards to be represented over some sort of two by two, like this is more important, less important, more difficult, less difficult. Um, you can also create, um, and you'll see this in a second, you can create hierarchies. So when you do sticky note exercises in person, you're saying, okay, this is the master sticky note for all these underneath, or these are the different um, ways we're grouping these sticky notes, and you can do all of that. Um, you can add images, but there, you know, he's creating a hierarchy there. And you can collapse the hierarchies, which is nice. Um, where I've seen this used the most is in doing interview research. If people want to see what are the ideas that are coming out of the interview in real time uh, on the team or the interview subject, they can kind of capture these as, as, as single ideas rather than a transcript of the interview, which is something that nobody reads. You know? Even the researcher doesn't read those, unless they're a cool researcher like my wife. Um, but this is kind of a, kind of a neat tool. It's a, it's a beta tool. Um, it's pretty easy to get an invite. You just ask for an invite, and they'll probably send you an invite. Uh, anybody here already use board thing? Cool. Well, I'm glad I shared with you a technology that. It, did anybody raise their hand over here? I didn't see. Cool. Well, if you haven't seen it, it's 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 kind of an, a, a nice way to do something really simple. Um, you know, there are, there are some other tools out there like Concept Board, which allow you to do like virtual whiteboards and share images and draw together and all that stuff. But this really just does sticky notes. That's all it's intended to do. And it does a great job of doing that. Um, I want to tell you another, uh, another story of failure. So uh, as you can see, people have expectations and they don't always come, come, come across the way you expect. Um, you can turn down the audio for this. So. Uh, I was starting a project with, uh, with NPR, actually, and we were trying to do essentially an open project. So if anybody wanted to check out our work, they could check it out at any time. And we were using Google Hangouts for our status meetings, and we thought, you know, what will we'll, what we'll be really cool is if we use uh, Hangouts on Air. I don't know if they still call them that, but at the time they called them Hangouts on Air. 
which would essentially record the Hangout live, and then you could port it directly to YouTube um, and put it in a private YouTube channel if you didn't want it to be out there you know, in the public. And we thought this was this great idea because anybody who missed the status meeting could get up to speed on the project very easily by watching a video of the meeting we just had. But what I found out very quickly is that people who don't have time to come to the meeting in person definitely don't have time to watch a video of the meeting, right? So, so while this idea seemed like a, a, a great solution for allowing people to stay up, up to speed on the project, it actually was a, a huge waste of our time. Um, and we abandoned it within like a month. It, it, it wasn't necessary. Um, it actually led to the recipe I have for check-ins now. Um, if you're a straight up Agile shop, you have to follow the official Agile recipe for check-ins and, and that's fine. But for my teams, I have two check-ins every week. I have one weekly with the client and one weekly uh, with the team. And all we do is we start a hangout, and it's open for about 30 minutes, and everybody is optional, you know? Um, for the first month of any project, I like to ask people to come to those meetings, but after that, everybody's optional. If you don't have time to come, it's on you to, to, to get up to speed, but I keep that hangout open, so if somebody comes 10 minutes late and they need to get caught up, you know, I can catch up with them and coordinate with them. Um, but, but I always open those meetings by saying, what is it that I can do for you? You know, how is this project helping you and what do you need to know in order to be successful for the next week? I don't review all the things that we've done. I don't go over all the, all the, the deliverables that they can expect. You know, if that's what they ask about, I'll tell them. But I always open by establishing what the other attendees' expectations are. And then I close by, re by revisiting those expectations. Um, now, those are just two examples of, of how to do kind of virtual, uh, how I've transitioned things from in-person to virtual. What's one thing that somebody does in the virtual meeting or virtual collaboration space that they feel like is a really nifty trick that works really well for them or made a light bulb go off for them? Anybody? Yeah, go ahead. So Mozilla has a tool called Etherpad. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So Etherpad, it sounds a lot, is, is it just text or is it text and images or whatever? It's whatever, yeah. So it sounds a little bit like Speak. Does anybody here use Speak? Oh, wow, I thought Speak was more popular. So Speak is a, it's very similar to that. Um, it's kind of a, a secure uh, live sharing space for text and images and whatever. Um, but it, it captures everything and you can, you can time mark it. So you can say from here to here, you know, document that and save it, um, which is kind of nice. So Etherpad, Speak. What else? What is it? Evernote, yeah. Yep, yeah. Evernote, actually, um, there's a really great case study on, on how uh, MailChimp uses Evernote. If you get a chance, you can go to the Evernote website and Google MailChimp. But they, they had a meeting where they were going over... Um, essentially data they were finding from MailChimp users. It was an open meeting and they started um, putting all of that in Evernote every week and it turned into a product that they built, that Evernote built. Um, it actually turned into Evernote for business eventually, uh, which was the birth of that product. So, uh, Anything else? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, Slack. I was saying speak, I meant Slack. How many of you use Slack? Oh, see, that's better. Speak was a, was a failed... Um, phone conferencing startup. Uh, go ahead. 
Yeah. Cool. So yeah, and I like Slack too. I, I've I've enjoyed kind of transitioning. Is anybody anybody who only using Slack and not email anymore? Do people anybody not use email anymore? I just wanted to make sure that wasn't some fantasy that only Scott Birkin has. Um, but you had something in the back. Everything's one-on-one. -on -one. So I want to I reiterate what you said for everybody in case they didn't hear, but then I have a question for you. So rather than having a stand-up with uh, five developers uh, as a group, you know, you have five short meetings with them essentially one-on-one. -on -one. Now my question is, do you ever have situations where if one knew what the other was doing, it would save time? Foursquare actually abandoned the stand-up. Um, there's an interesting article in the New York Times about how Foursquare transitioned away from stand-up um, stand meetings for traditional Agile into um, an email system that actually pushes out email and has read approvals. So the, you, it knows if the, the developers have read the emails that they're supposed to read. And you, everybody has to do their, here's what I'm working on in an email kind of snippet. Um, and that, that, that's been an interesting transition. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. So um, the last thing I want to talk about is after a meeting, like after we spend some time collaborating remotely, um, what happens? And really, the only thing I want to say about this is you never, I never want to conclude ambiguously. So I always circle back, like I said, to what people's expectations were at the beginning. Um, I never want to do, uh, anybody else have anything they want to talk about, you know? Because by concluding ambiguously, you're kind of creating a tone um, that isn't about moving forward. You're not establishing what's going to happen. Um, and the reason I do that is this, and, I, and I, I'll share this with you. Um, this is a sporting fail. I don't know if you're, you're catching what's happening here. This usually elicits more laughter. Are you guys very familiar with this video? Maybe you're in this video. I apologize if that's you, and uh, I've, I've embarrassed you. So um, I, uh, I had a, um, a project with uh, ESPN where we were building a site for them, and uh, they were in a hurry. And we decided we couldn't get everybody there for the, 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 the first meeting, right, for the kickoff, which we wanted to do as much in person as possible, but we couldn't. 
um, because you know they were in a rush and we didn't want to lose the project and, and that was the reality of the situation. So some people sort of called in from our team and some other people just kind of caught up later on. But what we found out was that actually cost us tons and tons of time by not getting on the same page at the beginning, you know? By really, um, and, and now for, for any project I do with distributed teams, I have one requirement, and that's that we all get together in person in the beginning of the project, you know, for a big project. Um, projects where, where distributed teams get together at the beginning of the projects are far more successful than projects where parts of the team get together or there's an account manager or a lead that gets together with the client. Um, in, in my three years of doing remote work, I found this conclusively. And if you talk to um, anybody who does remote team management, who's done it for, for years and years, they'll say the same thing. Um, even, in, even in Jason Fried's book, he talks about there are two or three times a year where the, the entire team at 37 Signals will get together to talk about their product and how it's changing. Um, and, and you know, why they're doing what they're doing. Um, so there's six things I talked about tonight, six just ideas. I feel like it's a good checklist when you're thinking about, you know, an important virtual meeting that you have to have. You know, is it gonna meet these things? Are, are we gonna spend time on outcomes, on what's gonna happen as a result of this stuff we're doing? Um, are we sure that, that we have the right technology in place and our attendees can use it? Because we are not the attendees, we're tech savvy, we're comfortable in Google Hangouts, our clients or our collaborators may be using it for the first time. So do we have the fallbacks in place? And do we, do we, do, can we get, it up, get them up in advance? Um, trust no one thing for that meeting because that time is expensive and important. You're getting together to fix a problem, um, to solve problems for people. So you don't wanna lose that time. Make sure that because Google Hangouts decides to take a break that day, that you don't, you don't lose that time. Um, deciding if it's going to be primarily in person or virtual and not mixing that, not having some people in person and some people virtually. Um, but if I'm doing it virtually, asking, okay, how would I do this if we were in person? What approach would I use and how, how can I transition that? Is there a technology like board thing that does it well or can I just kind of use uh, three by five cards and a Sharpie to, to get what I need to get out of this? Uh, and then finally, not concluding ambiguously, coming back to people's expectations. Those are kind of like the, the checklist that I use for the really important virtual meetings and even the, the, the weekly virtual meetings that I have. And I, I found that it's worked really well. Um, if you're interested in kind of reading what other people think about this, um, obviously Jason Fried's got a book called Remote. It's kind of the call to arms for wake up, we're already all working remotely and this is how you could do it. But it's kind of very focused on their culture. And um, one thing that I've learned uh, by doing this kind of work for 20 years is that culture is impossible to port. It's very difficult to take this successful culture at one company and just drop it into another company and expect it to work. Um, the Year Without Pants is about Scott uh, Birkins managing a team at Automatic for, for a year, uh, his first exposure to, to, to remote work, and it's very much like, here's what I went through and all the mistakes that I made, um, a lot of fun to read. But actually, if you're really interested in getting more value out of meetings, generally and having a breakthrough meetings with clients. There's a new book called Moments of Impact. It's not really focused on remote as much, but it's really a, an excellent book about how to get people to move out of their comfort zone and into thinking about the problems that they're trying to solve. You know, because that's what a, what a business is all about. Um, that being said, I am writing a book uh, called Meeting Design for makers and managers and everyone. 
And if you're interested, I would love it if you would sign up uh, for the mailing list at the URL. Should be out late next year uh, if I do what I'm supposed to do and write it at some point. Uh, but uh, I, would, I would love it if you would sign up or, or just tell me, you know, what you'd like to get out of the book. Um, you can also uh, reach out to me at my website, um, which is KevinMHoffman.com uh, Kevin or SevenHeads.com. And all of the slides from tonight are at KevinMHoffman.com slash Code and Creativity slash 2014. Uh, or you can get the slides uh, by reaching out to Aaron and, and he'll, uh, he'll have that stuff for you. Um, but the last thing I wanted to say is that you, you know, the, the, the idea of being a business, whether you're, you're incorporated or you pay taxes based on employees or your mom thinks you have a real office, you're all individually a business. Your ability to solve problems, that's how you measure your value in, in, in helping people with your product or, or a service. So by treating yourself like a business and, and taking those meetings really seriously, um, you know, that's how I've been able to get a lot more value out of that time. Uh, and uh, thank you very much for uh, hanging out with me tonight. I appreciate it.